Hello, welcome to A Drink to the Past, the only podcast where our theme song is just beer. Just two guys opening beers. Sometimes more than two guys. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Michael Patrick Thompson, and this is my co-host, Flapper Chris Girl. sometimes has the last name Audette. Chris Flapper Girl Audette. Yeah, yeah. Not actually a Flapper Girl disclaimer. Right, yeah. False advertising on our Born podcast. 100 years too late and too male for that. A little bit. Also, I don't like makeup. And that would be a kind of a turnoff there for uh, yeah. trying to run that into a uh, career. Anyways, um, <laughs> hooray, we're here now. Did I pick topics this week? I nope. probably should have. Here, uh, Chris, pick two topics from our list of future topics, and uh, I, and and I'll I'll get into the news while we're doing that. So today's beer of the week, uh, or no, first is Sean drinks something stupid. I screwed up already, so we have to drink. Um, so Sean drinks something stupid is uh, in my new rocks glasses. Ooh, they're fancy. Although I forgot to put ice in it. So it's... Oh, it does look like you picked up the video game topic. So I picked up the table talk oh. topic. Good. We're good. Hooray. Perfect. We got it then. Um, in that case, we've got uh, Sean drinks something stupid, as I was already saying, which is a Whalen Watermelon Cocktail, uh, which says put your favorite alcohol in the bottle shot thing, and it should be good. So put a shot of Kraken in it. Everything's better with a shot of Kraken, I think, right? How do they fit a whole whale in there? Well, the Kraken eats the whale, and then, so it's, like, processed, so it, it fits into a smaller space. Ah, I see. You've rendered things clear to me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> clear as a cocktail. <laughs> it's not that good. It's, it's pretty opaque. It's pretty dark. Yeah. It's a little lighter than it appears on camera, I think. If Like, you can hold it up to the light and stuff, but the lighting on the camera isn't amazing for that. Anyways, it's it's the same as all these bottle shots. They're all just starting to blend together. They're just sugar water. <laughs> you put some kind of booze in. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe there's a little bit of like artificial watermelon flavor. It doesn't taste like watermelon, but it tastes like almost like a watermelon Jolly Rancher, you know, where it's like it doesn't taste like watermelon. It tastes like artificial watermelon. The primary flavor is sugar. Yeah. Uh, Which is probably exacerbated by the fact that, you know, I put a fairly sugary uh, alcohol in it, because Kraken is a decently sweet rum. I mean, it's, it's obviously a black-spiced rum, but all rum is naturally pretty sweet. I do, and, I mean, it's not like sugar is a bad flavor. I, no. I haven't met anybody who dislikes sugar. Right. So, um, Yeah. It's not terrible, eh, but I'm, I'm just kind of getting bored of them all being pretty samey. Uh, so, six. What uh, what kind of beer are you drinking this week, Chris? Uh, I may have had this on the uh, show before. I remember actually liking this beer better mm. than uh, the, what, how much I'm liking it right now. It's a Spice mm -hmm. Trade Brewing Chai Milk Stout. I like them. And, and I like I that stout. Pretty well. Really liking it first time, <laughs> but uh, apparently today I just had too many like 
spices, too much chai in my mm. life. So the chai, the chai flavor on this particular batch is very strong, huh. and kind of kind of overpowering. Okay. So mm. it actually is rendering the beer like a little worse. Yeah, I guess it's probably a little different <laughs> than yeah, because I don't remember it being like overpoweringly chai. Like it's mostly a milk stout with a bit of that chai and spice kind of thing going on is what I usually have it. Although I also wonder. Uh, how different it is. Uh, do you have it in cans or something? I do have it in cans. Because yes. I've only ever had it like at the brewery on tap, so that would probably lend some different characteristics to it as well. Yeah, it's show uh, off my glassware here. I got my Lord of the Rings cups from Burger King 21 years ago or whatever that we were over uh, a couple of times ago. I had my Gandalf glass, so now I got my Arwen. Uh, it's pretty, pretty sweet, but hard to to really tell what's going on in the uh, in the picture there, you can kind of see her. Anyways, yeah. So and good old light up doohickey. Let's see if this one works better. The Gandalf one didn't light up very well, so maybe this one will light up better. No, it doesn't light up at all. Lame. Oh well. And uh, my beer of the week today is. Uh, uh, from Ska Brewing Company, Moral Panic Brute IPA. Sure. That should be interesting, theoretically. I'm not exactly sure. I feel like recently I'm seeing a fair amount of Brute lagers and Brute IPAs, but I'm not actually sure what that means as a style, because it's a fairly recent trend. I mean, they've probably been around for quite a while, but... but I'm not really sure what sets them apart from other lagers and IPAs. Um, well, apparently, uh, Brute IPA was invented last year. Oh, really? Or not last? No, not last year. 2017. Sorry. Okay, so it's still like for a beer style that's very recent. <laughs> yes. People have been brewing uh, like various beers for a long, long time. Yeah. It's a apparently like a dry. A dry champagne, supposed to be like a dry champagne-like IPA. Okay. And this is me just reading this off the New York Times here. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the um, the other one that I was just looking at was a brute lager that's like mixed with Pinot Noir wine. Uh, so I guess I can kind of see that. <laughs> I apparently it's some sort of wineish beer. So I'm gonna finish this off before I have at that. Um, it's kind of interesting color. It's uh, maybe hard to tell on there, but it's kind of uh, fairly, like, lightish color, but it's, like, very hard to see through, very cloudy. It's almost green. Yeah, almost. Um, so, interesting color on there. But, uh, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's get into what you playing. So, Chris, what you playing? Uh, well, I have to say, in this week, this week, I'm actually more interested in what you're playing, but I'll go first so that I don't spoil the surprise. Right, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, I've been playing Dead by Daylight, as always. This mm -hmm. has become... Is that just your addiction? I, I have not played a game this hard since League of Legends. Uh, okay. Which is saying something. Yeah. Like, game, game's buggy as hell, but I'm <laughs> having a lot of fun with it all the same. I'm having a lot of unique moments with I it. I saw it was on so. sale on Steam now, uh, which is one of our news topics we're going to get into a little bit, is there's lots of stuff on Steam sale. but um, So I was I was kind of considering it, but I hadn't got around to it. 
I'll, I'll still consider it. I don't know. I got a couple other things, so I'm not sure I need yeah. more games right uh, now. So the, <laughs> the unique game that I played this week, got managed to play co-op online with some friends, was uh, Unrailed, which I guess oh. has been out has been in early access for a couple years now. Okay. Uh, but it's basically a co-op game where you place tracks down and your train keeps on traveling along them. Mm -hmm. But And you have to place them out in front of the train so that it doesn't uh, fall, uh, go off the edge of the rails. Neat. Yeah, but so you gotta clear things out of the way like trees and mine rocks out of the way and you have to make your train makes new tracks out of the trees and the rocks that you mine and you have to layer them out hmm. but it's like overcooked and that you can bump into each other hmm. and get in each other's way uh and it can just go endlessly mm -hmm. uh so you go from like uh from like a plains biome and then every time you upgrade your main engine it slows the train down mm -hmm. again because it goes faster and faster every level Mm -hmm. And then it moves you to a new biome. So you go like first to the for to like through the plains, and then to like the wild west, mm -hmm. and then I think to like a snow biome past that. Huh. We, we we haven't we've only seen the wild west in game, right? But uh, okay, sounds kind of neat. Yeah. Right. Anything else you've been playing? Let's see. I have not gotten back to. Uh, I have yet to get back to some of my other games that I feel like I need time to dig into. Mm -hmm. That can sometimes happen. Yeah. I have a bunch of games I'm looking forward to playing, but I need to figure out which one to start up next. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Um, and as I stated last week, I got The Last of Us Part Two. Which has been, a, I almost want to say a lot of fun, but it's not really so much fun. It's a, I, I read an article, um, there was an interview with uh, one of the developers that he was saying that we really did not design The Last of Us Part 1 or Part 2 to be fun. Because they design it to be engaging and thought-provoking and things like that, but not necessarily fun. Um... Which I thought is a kind of an interesting way to put it, because, yeah, I, like, you know, I'm not sure I would call the game fun, but I would call the game, you know, it's it's kind of like watching an art film where it's not exactly, like, funny, but it's it's still, you're, you, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's, it's you, like the uh, art film of games. It's, you watch, it's like, it's not... You're not doing it for fun, but you're like, this might is an experience that might enrich my life, kind of thing. Yeah, something kind of like that. And I, I've uh, I, I kind of understand that. I've uh, yeah. And that's been pretty cool. Um, I haven't got super far in. I'm like five hours in. Um, but you know, the plot keeps taking fairly unexpected turns and things like that. So it's keeping me on my toes being like what's going to happen next so i'm really excited to continue on that um and uh another game that i kind of went back to was kirby air ride randomly 
I popped it in my GameCube and I've been playing with my kids and they're totally digging it. But it, one of my GameCube controllers is broken, so now I've only got one GameCube controller, so that's kind of sucky. I can only play. But they're usually okay with just like watching me play or one of them will play. They've been surprisingly okay at that, which is like, I didn't expect that out of them. I'm like, hooray. I made that's you mature. Huh. <laughs> Win for me. Uh, so that's been kind of cool too. And, and Kirby Air Ride is like my favorite racing game of all time, which is kind of strange to say because it's a really weird racing game, but uh, just fantastic game all around. I'm not sure if I'd say it's my favorite racing game, but it's definitely, it's like in its own genre. Yeah, it is, because it's it's almost not a racing game, but it's still kind of, you know, it's like a hybrid racing adventure action thing. And playing it again is really kind of bringing me back to this mindset I had playing it the first time, that I really want a 3D open adventure Kirby game. And I'm like, how has Kirby lasted like 30 years and never had a 3D game? Isn't that just weird? Outside of this one, which is a spin-off. So I'm like, is this, you know, this well, is the in only a way, 3D Kirby game ever made. I'm like, this is so weird. In a way, it's kind of encouraging because, <laughs> as we discussed last episode, uh, making the transition to 3D is kind of difficult. Yeah, out of the time. it is, but uh, it's kind but of funny how was... I feel like Air Ride successfully transformed Kirby into 3D better than a lot of games <laughs> transformed themselves into 3D. Like, yes. arguably, it did a better job representing Kirby in a 3D space than, like, Metroid Prime did for the Metroid series, which some people will argue, obviously, that was the best, you know, 3D Metroid game or whatever, but... It you does know, help it, that it, it was it's also a genre very, transition. Yeah, because it's it's very different from a traditional Metroid game, is, is kind of my point. And I feel like Kirby Air Ride embodies the spirit of Kirby and everything Kirby very, very well, even though it's a spin-off, too. So it's maybe one of my favorite spin-offs of all time as well. It's just a fantastic game. Um, and another thing I've been playing recently, uh, before I get into the slightly news and booze, I'm going to kind of segue into news and booze with my Steam sale stuff, but I've been playing some Runeball the last couple of weeks. Uh, so if you check out one of our podcasts a long time ago, it's the episode title is Runeball, and we have the creator of the sport on the podcast with us. His name is Roy, and, um, I played my maybe my last game ever with him because he's moving out to Michigan. Uh, so that's kind of sad. Uh, so we're glad to see he's still doing well, uh, but he's going to be moving on and trying to start some Runeball out there. And So if you haven't heard of Runeball, go to the uh, website here on my hat, which is runeballcore.com, or you can check him out on Facebook. So hashtag shameless plug. If you ever thought, gee, I want to juggle a basketball with a sword, then this is the game for you. And if you've never thought that before, it's actually surprisingly natural feeling to juggle a basketball with a sword. Yeah, I having played Runeball myself, I would highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. I would also say the reason I'm not playing Runeball myself <laughs> is current events. That's fair. It's uh, Although it's a fairly decent social distancing sport, because if anybody comes within six feet of you, you get to hit them with a wooden sword. Yeah. So... It's there there are certainly worse things to do <laughs> for social distancing, but it's it's 
very understandable why you would want to avoid such a sport as this at a time like this. Anywho, um, let's kind of segue into the news and booze. So our first news and booze topic I actually forgot to put on here, but there's a Steam sale, uh, which we've already been slightly plugging already, and that's which going to I kind of be into what you're playing as well. Cause it is on the list. Oh, it is? Oh. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I moved it up from the bottom here. Oh, okay. Steam Summer Sale is here. Uh, I've already lost my life savings to the Cult of Gaven. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so uh, have you taken any advantage of that there, Chris? Uh, I've already bought a few interesting games that mm-hmm. I've just... Unrailed was one of them. Okay. Uh, which I started playing. I also bought these weird prog rock games called mm. uh, Hylix. I love Hylix prog rock too. in general, so that's kind of interesting. They got, they're like a JRPG with claymation and like a weird leather-suited uh, guy who has a moon for a face. Okay. Uh, so it, 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 I was like, okay, this looks weird enough that I think I have to pick this up. I'm like mm-hmm. legally obligated. Right. Fills my weird games quota. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm interested to play those. Mm-hmm. All right. And so for me, um, I've only got a couple of things, but um, things that I've been... One of them is something that I've been kind of meaning to do for, like, years, which is I finally bought Undertale, which is on sale for, like, three bucks. So, um, I've also played my first hour of that, which you can catch on our YouTube channel, so look up Drink to the Past on YouTube. Or if you're already viewing this, then you can go and, you know, search our other videos, because you're already on YouTube. Crazy. Um, so yeah, I gave my first impressions on that. It's, it's kind of an interesting, really, like, I didn't see any of this coming, which is funny, because I feel like, you know, as prolific as it is, that I would have had, like, something spoiled that was important, but I feel like none of the spoilers that I've got are important whatsoever. Like, I've seen, like, some of the character designs, I've heard some of the music, I've heard a lot of the music, because I hang out with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all of the story elements are completely taking me off guard. I'm just like, what the hell is this? That's so unexpected in everything that ever happens. I'm just like, what's going on? And so it's it's definitely keeping me interested in just what's going to happen next. It's a strange series of different things coming I together. I do have to say, I did, I, I, I did watch your uh, first episode there, mm-hmm. uh, and I liked, I liked that you commented on something, and the game immediately said the thing you commented on afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened kind of a couple of times, or, or like I'd like expect something, and then it would happen in a couple of cases, and I'd be like, I kind of saw that coming, but it's kind of like still throws me off it's, it, it has an interesting way of doing the expected in an unexpected way so yeah that's been kind of interesting and i also got the halo master chief collection ah. which is pretty sweet because that's on sale um for like 30 bucks um so that's not bad because it comes with a buttload of halo uh so i've been playing the first uh, Halo game again for the first time in like since before my kids were born so at least six years because um, the the last time I played the first Halo game I just popped in the 
I, I remember specifically I didn't have any kids because I had, you know, enough time to literally just sit down. I, I put the disc in and I played the entire campaign through in a day. Um, you were basically, you were a kid yourself. I was, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was, but so it's, but it's kind of interesting coming back and the uh, version in here is uh, the uh, remastered version, which came out, uh, I don't remember when exactly, but it's, um, I thought it was kind of interesting that there's like everything's like mostly cleaned up just you know a lot of textures are put into slightly nicer things there's a lot more detail in like the elites uh character models and stuff like that but captain keys looks fucking weird it's so weird to look at him and i'm just like why didn't they just leave you the same like it's it it doesn't even look like him like you'd expect him to look maybe like he did in Halo 2 or something. Uh, I don't remember if he appeared in Halo 2. I feel like he appeared in one of the other... Because, anyways, he dies in the first one, and then I feel like you see him in a flashback or something. But, point of the story is, he's just... He looks so weird. And, like, some... it, it, it Some of these things in general kind of take me aback, and, and they're just like different looking enough to my memory that I'm just like almost he shocked like by he them. He went through like a G-Man transformation. <laughs> He's got, oh, I'm looking at pictures on Google here. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, he looks like a distinguished military officer in the original Halo. Mm -hmm. And he looks like a fucking space alien in the remake. Yeah, he's so weird. And his, his bottom lip is just like like shoved out this, the whole time. You're like, what the hell's going on, man? <laughs> so, um, it's been fun to revisit, uh, but, what the fuck? What the fuck did you do to Captain Keys? Um, so, Steam Summer Sale is here. I guess that's all we have to say on that. Um, Ninjala and Pokemon Cafe both released, free to start on the eShop. So that's also another kind of segue, <laughs> kind of half what you're playing still. Because um, I played both of those for at least a little bit. Ninjala I played for several matches, just kind of trying to figure out the mechanic. And I, it this is really kind of strange that... I couldn't figure out the mechanic because basically in this game you are like these ninja guys trying to kill each other and to do so you have various different kind of strange looking weapons and you shoot gum wads at the other guys to like stick them to the ground or you can have different gum powers that like one of them makes like a web that if people go into it they'll be stuck there and one of them makes like a bubble shield around you that players will take damage if they walk into but it's almost invisible and uh, other than that, the primary combat mechanic is like this kind of mechanic that it kind of makes it work like a, like a Dragon Ball Z kind of clip where the two characters will go at each other and they'll like, you know, lock swords and then one of them will do a counter and then the other one will do a counter and, you know, it'll be kind of a back and forth sort of thing. But I couldn't figure out how to win these counter battle things and it was so weird because I would try different things in them and they would have like some amount of success for a while and then they'd literally just not work and I would just be entirely, 
you know, destroyed for an entire match, and I couldn't win a single one of these counter battles. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm not doing anything differently. And I found out that they're based on basically a rock, paper, scissors system. So depending on which direction you're pushing on the thumbstick, it picks basically rock, paper, or scissors, and your opponent picks the same thing, which means that the core mechanic is 90% luck-based. I'm just that like, what... What a Very dumb design. Well, <laughs> so there is something to be said about mind gaming your opponent, but I'm not sure how you mind game without having, like, at least a half second to consciously process. Right, yeah. I mean, you have enough time to consciously process, but it's... It's, first of all, the tutorial is very, very unclear how this works. The tutorial is literally like a two-minute YouTube video that it... I think it actually technically brings you out of the game and into the Switch browser, because after you push B, it, like, goes back to, like, a web page looking thing with the video on it, and you have to push B again to get back into the game, which is kind of strange. Um, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's super weird. Um... So anyways, it's not like a terrible game, but I feel like that mechanic, based on how the rest of the game work, is very badly implemented. And, and it should be some sort of skill-based thing, or maybe differently luck-based. I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly, because it's, it's just a weird mechanic, and I'm not into it. Pokemon Cafe is a weird puzzle game. If you like Candy Crush, you'll like it. I don't like Candy Crush, so I don't like it. I played it once, I'm done. Good. <laughs> like, eh. Did you play either of those or have any interest, Chris? Mm, no. That's fair. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> like, Ninjala, I kind of was interested in... I feel like most people are interested in it because the art style looks so much like Splatoon. And I feel like if it was slightly differently designed, it could carry across the same kind of, like, frantic gameplay energy as Splatoon. But it's kind of fails to deliver on that front, unfortunately. Um, next piece of news and booze. Min Min is coming to Super Smash Bros. June 29th, so next week we're going to be talking about that. Oh, yeah. Fuck yes. Because Min Min is awesome. Did you ever play... You, you played a little arms with me at some point. I did play a little arms. Yeah, you don't have the game yourself, though, do you? Uh, I do not have the game myself, though, but I'm happy to see Min Min made it in. Mm -hmm. Min Min for the win-win. Oh, yeah. Dumb joke, we have to drink. Which brings me back to my Brute IPA, which is actually okay. Interestingly, like, very juicy. Um, I'm not really sure what to say about it. It's not really... Ha it looks hazy, but it's not really hazy, like, in characteristic. But it's not, it's not bad. It's very refreshing, very juicy. Um, so, I think that's kind of the point of Brute IPAs. They're supposed to be very fruity, from what I can understand. Um, it's not bad. Uh, let's give it a, let's give it a 13. Um, anyways, uh, so, are you excited about Min Min specifically, or, um, just an ARMS character in general? I'm, I'm happy to see an ARMS character in there, but I like Min Min's design. Yeah, uh, Min Min, I think, is one of the greatest, like, character designs in that game anyway. And not to say that any of them are bad, actually. I really like 
pretty much all the character designs except for Springman, who I feel like was designed on purpose to be the generic male protagonist for ARMS. And so he's which, super generic because of it, which isn't a terrible thing, but, you know. When I, I, I don't get that trend. I don't get why you would design a generic protagonist when you could design mm -hmm. something. When you could have a character design that's interesting instead. Or at least... Violet! <coughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> um, Alright, so along with this announcement, we are getting a Ninjara Mi costume, a Heihachi Mi costume, Kelly and Marie Mi costume, and the kind of big left-field Mi costume is Vault Boy. And I want to ask whose dick Bethesda had to suck to get the Vault Boy costume in there. I don't know, but, like, I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm it. happy it's there, because <laughs> I, I still like Fallout, but... Right. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see that that's, like, the first big Bethesda... Re like, there's the Cacodemon hat, I think, from Doom, but I'm not... Uh, but other than that, like, there's no Bethesda representation in Smash, I think. And that's, like, ambiguously Bethesda, because it's, like, id before it was Bethesda. And I'm, I'm not really sure where all the, you know, property lines lie, so to speak, with uh, all the so, copyright. It used to be that Fallout was developed by Black Isle. Mm -hmm. uh, the first two Fallout games, which is where I knew Fallout from. Right, I didn't uh, play till Fallout Three. And, yeah, and Fallout Three was really a different beast entirely. Mm -hmm. New Vegas is probably the spiritual successor to uh, the first two Fallout games. Like New Vegas a lot more than I like Three. Not to say yeah. like Three was good, but I, I did like Three. New Vegas really just kind of worked differently because the the whole thing going open world was like just a huge thing. Uh, for me, because I felt like the exploration in that game was one of the best explorable game worlds that has ever been made. You know, there's so much character interaction to do, or bad guys to fight, or whatever you want to do. It's kind of there for you somewhere. And the the open world design was one of the better ones that I think even Bethesda has had. Um, and obviously, you know, they have some pretty good open world designs. Yeah. Another couple of little Smash Brothers news topics here. Uh, spirits list is coming to Smash. It's going to be a new feature where you can kind of look at a list of all the spirits you've fought and failed to defeat, uh, all the ones that you have, and you can, if you've like ever defeated the spirit battle, you can actually go back and fight the spirit battle again to try and get a higher score. So it's just kind of neat little new mode. Um, anything specifically you think on that? Uh. Not in particular. It's, it's nice that they're still doing like quality of life features mm -hmm. for Super Smash Bros. Yeah, because uh, I I think that'll be kind of cool, like going back to the melee days almost, where you're like, uh, in the melee days, you know, you would do the trophy battles sometimes. You know, again, if they were fun, and this is kind of basically the same thing as trophy battles were in uh, melee. So, being able to do them again, you know, whichever one you want at the time, I think it's pretty cool. 
Um, and last Smash Brothers news is uh, Joker Amiibo is coming fall 2020, so that's the first of the DLC Amiibos to be confirmed. Uh, there's also a Hero Amiibo in development, but they are unsure if anything will come to the market after Joker. So, um, it might be that Joker is the only DLC character that gets an Amiibo, or... Others might as well, and they confirmed that the team is still working on Super Smash Bros. DLC. So, uh, like, I'm not surprised at that at all. They're not going to quit their jobs, um, you know, as long as they can feasibly do them to some extent. I'm sure it's, you know, not being in an office together probably has its struggles, but, you know, of all the jobs to have to work from home from, I feel like video game development is one of the jobs that will probably work a little better than a vast majority of jobs to work from home. Yeah, you can definitely do development from home. And, and, and in some cases, you can do it better yeah. than you could in an office setting. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not for video game development. Yeah, I'm sure it'll, have a, it'll be a little bit of a double-edged sword either way, but... Um, but then the Amiibo thing I think is kind of interesting, because, uh, like a lot of people weren't even expecting Amiibos for anything past what they were promised, which was that, you know, everybody through the original roster of the game would get an Amiibo, and then obviously Piranha Plant did, so he's technically a DLC Amiibo, but he was, he was a weird way of distributing DLC, because he was, like, only available as a free fighter if you bought the game in the first three months or something along those lines. I forget exactly. So he's, he's kind of a... He is a DLC fighter, quote-unquote. But it's... it You know, he's not a paid DLC fighter. So it's interesting to see that a Joker amiibo is coming and that they've got other ones, like, in development, maybe. But... It's kind of interesting to see that they might just not work out, because I don't know how the Amiibo market is particularly, but it's it sounds like the market for these things is kind of dwindling anyway, and Super Smash Brothers is literally the only series that makes Amiibo anymore. They don't even make Amiibo for, like, all their other series coming out here. So, you do much Amiibo, Chris? Uh, I do not have, own a single Amiibo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a bunch, and they're mostly Zelda. Yeah, that... pretty good. I, I've of never. Pokemon. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've actually, yeah, I've, I've actually seen your amiibo collection. I think. Yeah, at some point, um, I actually just posted it on Twitter the other day because somebody said post your shelves, and I was like, ah, oh, I got these, and I got uh, some of them set up on a big shelf, and some of them set up on a couple of littler shelves that my wife was clever enough to say, hey, let's set up these shelves like a Super Smash Brothers, uh, like, Battlefield stage. So I was like, that's a good idea. That's why I have a wife. For good ideas. So, yeah, um... But yeah, because I've always wanted to collect like first four figures or something like that, but I've never had A, the space to store three foot tall statues, or B, the money for them, or C, not had children so that my children would smash them. Yeah, that seems to be... Those all seem to be yeah. hang-ups. Because if I had a, you know, a giant space to store a whole bunch of three-foot-tall statues, then I would totally be, like, and, and the money to support that, I'd totally be, like, then I might even be able to justify them even with the kids, but probably not, because, you know, kid, kids do stuff. Our kids, are. our kids are crazy sometimes. 
And I, I just saw on Twitter the other day, somebody was like, said that they had like the Wind Waker one with it's got Link in the boat. Uh, so it's like the King of Red Lions with Link riding. And uh, they're like, the cleaning company came in and Link is like in three different pieces somehow. And I'm just like, oh man, I would be pissed if I had a $350 statue busted by the cleaning lady. I mean, yeah, that that it, that's almost something you'd like want insurance for. I I would not want to. Right, yeah. I'm like cuz you can like the way that it was broken, it looked like you could have glued some of them, some of the pieces, but they might have been really awkward. And even so, like gluing them, it's gonna have a mark forever, so that kind of sucks. Anyways, um The Witcher season 2 is coming to the Netflix on August 17th. Bum, bum, bum. That's pretty cool. You watch the first season of The Witcher? I have not. What did uh, August seventeenth. Fuck yeah. Uh, fuck yeah, says my wife. So uh, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, I've not played any of The Witcher games, although I have Witcher three, and it's been kind of like on the third or fourth back burner for a few games. So as soon as I'm out of Last of Us and then Doom Eternal, maybe I'll get onto that unless something else comes. <laughs> we all know how that goes. So, um, yeah, I guess that's basically all we have to say about that. But I'm pretty excited. I thought the first season was pretty cool. Um, I really dig Henry Cavill as the Witcher, um, just in general. Um, he's surprisingly good in that role. Because, like, in Man of Steel, I was like, this is okay. But I really am just not a Superman fan at all. So I was like, the whole movie, Some, I was just like, this is okay. And most people, somehow, I feel like, don't like that movie anyway. And I was just like, it's I, okay. But Somehow I didn't connect that Henry Cavill as being the same actor as in Man of Steel. Uh -huh. <laughs> and Man of Steel is, is weird for me, because I do like when a Superman story is done well. I, I, uh -huh. I, I'm, I'm one of those... I'm pro probably in the minority at this point, but right. I, I am one of those people who enjoy Superman, and Man of Steel missed the fucking point. Uh-huh. Which is kind of funny for me, because, like, as a non-very big Superman... Like, I, I like Superman fine, but he's just, like, literally a backup to Batman for me. Uh, I'm a big, big, big Batman fan, but Superman, I've always just been kind of like, yeah, he's one of those other superheroes, you know, to me. And... Sometimes I like him, and, but most of the time I'm just like, yeah, okay, it was Superman. That, and that's kind of what I felt about Man of Steel, is it was, like, not terrible. Like, I thought the story was fine. I thought the action was fine. But I was just not overly enthused, because I'm not into Superman. But I feel like that was, like, more positive than almost anybody said about Man of Steel in general. So. Oh, I, I don't think anybody disliked the action in Man of Steel. I right. thought... I, th I think that was probably one of the high points of the movie. It was how it did everything Plus, else. I like Amy Adams. She's, like, great in everything. She was, like, better as Lois Lane than that movie was as being a movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's another kind of issue maybe it had. Anyways, The Last of Us 2 sold 4 million copies in three days. 
making it the fastest launch of a PlayStation 4 exclusive. The next places are Final Fantasy VII Remake, which we were just commenting on last month, sold 3.5 million in three days. Spider-Man sold 3.3 million a few years ago. God of War sold 3.1 million a few years ago. So, Holy shit, it outsold Final Fantasy VII Yeah, by a full half a million fucking copies. That's, That's insanity. Incredible. Yeah, I didn't... Like, I knew Last of Us was, like, a popular thing, but I did not see this coming. I'm like, holy crap, this thing sold well. So I'm glad to be one of these four million peoples that sold out a copy of that. Um, Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2 has been revealed. So that's kind of cool. Um, I still haven't played Ritual of the Night, um, but uh, I played the first Curse of the Moon, uh, and that was really cool. So, kind of excited to see Curse of the Moon, too. And one of these days, I should probably get Ritual of the Night. Is it, it called Ritual of the it, Night? It's called something uh, like I, that. Let me... I, I, so, th this is how bad I've been. Mm -hmm. Is I have the game. It's sitting in my library. Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. Uh-huh. Uh, I have yet to play it, even though I want to play it. Right, Even yeah. though I've heard so many good things about it. Mm -hmm. Uh... So yeah, I'll have to play that, and then I'll have to check out Curse of the Moon too. Yeah, Curse of the Moon uh, was uh, one of their Kickstarter stretch goals was that they would do an 8-bit style prequel game to Ritual of the Night if they met the stretch goal, and they met it. So that's kind of how the original Curse of the Moon came out. And um, So that's the one that I got because it released beforehand, and it was not very expensive. It was like 10 bucks or something on Switch. Uh, so I, I played that, and it's kind of cool, because I'm, like, not super into Castlevania-style games, but I was, like, really digging this the whole time through, so, um, I'm not, I'm trying to think, I feel like I liked, um, Blasphemous better as a Castlevania-style game, but other than that, like, I still like this really well as a... This is maybe my second favorite Castlevania-style game that I've ever played. And uh, was Curse of the Moon, was that the 8-bit one? Curse of the Moon is the 8-bit one. Ritual of the Night is the, the full 3D models one. Yeah, it's, so it's still a side-scroller, but, you know. So it may be hearkening back to the original Castlevanias, which were not Castle, which were not Metroidvanias and the way we would... Right. Are used to thinking Metroidvanias these days. They were more like side-scrolling action. Yeah, they were more kind of beat 'em up sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what I've played because I've played a handful of the Nintendo and Super Nintendo ones, and just none of them ever really hooked me. Uh, this one kind of hooked me first on gameplay, and second on just really the sprite artwork is fucking gorgeous. I love it. Um, but uh, the the gameplay really is kind of a mesh of uh, Castlevania and like Ninja Gaiden, so I thought that was a really cool kind of mishmash. And you get uh, four different characters in your party, and you can switch between the four and go through levels different ways depending on what power you've got. Because uh, like one of the guys can turn into a bat and fly over. Uh, you know, big trenches and unlock secret areas over there or, or, you know, if you're the other characters you might have to go a different way based on their powers. So it's really just cool design and a uh, very open-ended structure, which I think adds to the Castlevania-ness of it, you know, with the kind of interweaving corridors and stuff that Metroidvanias are kind of known for. Um, 
and also just the the action was really fun because it was like playing ninja gaiden almost you know there's you know cool power-ups and stuff you can get and uh really just awesome awesome game all around so super excited to see curse of the moon 2 i should get around to ritual of the night eventually uh pokemon unite was announced it's a moba being development we have to drink because i stuttered over my words anyways um pokemon company okay. is who doesn't stutter on their words people without yeah with without like, speech impediments precision yeah uh, yeah I, I swear if i drank every time i uh stumbled on my words uh i would be dead <laughs> anyways uh so it's a pokemon moba being developed with a partnership between uh, Tencent and Timmy and Pokemon Company. Uh, so it sounds like maybe maybe an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, unfortunately, it's the sort of game I wanted support due to the company behind it. Yeah, that seems to be a lot of the thing. Is like people out here in the West are like um, either not interested in MOBAs or really hate Tencent. It's yeah. <laughs> kind of what it sounds like. I'm like not all that up on what Tencent is doing, so I'm kind of indifferent uh, to them, but I'm also really so indifferent on MOBAs, so whatever. It's not something I want to get into <laughs> here because it ventures into the realm of uh, uh, it ventures into real life uh, political realms that are not necessarily game related yeah yeah so it's that's that's kind of what i've gathered i know like a little bit about it but i'm just like it's the kind of thing that i'm not that interested in talking about and you know just in general so but a pokemon moba would you play it because you played league of legends for a long time and uh you still play dota from time to time don't you uh Every once in a while, I get a hankering for some Dota. Mm -hmm. I gave up League of Legends for good once Tencent got behind it. Uh. Uh, not that it was that difficult. I stopped playing it. Uh, mm. In theory, I would at least try out a Pokemon MOBA. Right. I would be interested in seeing what that looks like. Yeah, the gameplay looked okay. Um, like, if you're into MOBAs, I feel like this would be the kind of thing. But um, basically, the... Uh, one of the guys I follow on Twitter, it's called Dr. Lava, uh, does a bunch of interesting Pokemon facts and stuff, so check him out on Twitter. But uh, his theory behind what this is kind of trying to do is kind of make Pokemon popular in China. Obviously, with Tencent, the Chinese company, kind of helping behind it, as well as the MOBA style, which is very popular in China. Uh, he's thinking it's just... Uh, maybe just trying to break Pokemon into a market it's never really been able to get into as much and last piece of news and booze here is cyberpunk 277 is delayed until november uh and reminder of words of wisdom a delayed game is eventually good a bad game is bad forever so this may be slightly old news i believe this yeah was I, I think this was last week yeah I, I think i thought about putting that on and uh but we hadn't really talked much cyberpunk 2077 in general um, and I was like, I don't know, like, I'm not really sure that, I'm not super hyped about this game, necessarily. I'm just like, a lot of people are really hyped about You're it. You're not hyped for genital customization? 
<laughs> oh, I think that's the literally the only topic we've talked about on the podcast involving cyberpunk. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm I like, think- I, I could maybe see myself, you know, I don't know, just from the trailers, I'm just like, it looks like some sort of generic-ish action game with Keanu Reeves. That's all I can really tell. So, like, until I see more or something different, I'm just kind of indifferent to this. And maybe I it'll be a great game, but... I think the reason people are excited about it, uh, the reason there is hype about it, is because it's by the same people who did The Witcher 3. Oh, but with that's true. character customization. Yeah. Which, I'm like, you, you tell somebody like me that, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm sold. I'm ready to pick that up. Uh, I'm interested to see what it's like in practice, but the, the fact that they, they're they delaying it again is probably a good thing. Probably, yeah. Because um, it was going to come out, what, in July or something, right? Uh, yeah, it was originally going to come out in April, and then they delayed it to September. And now they're delaying it again to November. Right. So, yeah, um, theoretically, that should all be good for it. You know, I've had my fair share of delayed Zelda games, and they've all been great. So, you know, it just... Um, yeah, that was kind of interesting, though, because, you know, as a, as a person who's never played any of the Witcher games, I'm like, okay, now I can kind of see, because there's a lot of hype behind anything Witcher-related. So, um uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really think of that. It is uh, CD Projekt Red, though. So um, I, I think The Witcher Three is a game in particular that gets called out for being just in general a good game. Yeah, that's well designed in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Not that I've ever played it. This is all hearsay from me. Don't don't take this as me stating my opinion. Right. Yeah. It. Eventually, I'll get that off of the fourth back burner, and, and I'll let you yeah. guys know. Uh, I got a lot of games in the fourth back. burner. Yeah, you do. Shh. I need more games. <laughs> All right. So that uh, seems to cover it for the news and booze. So let's get into our video game topic, shall we? Yes. So our video game topic for today is what makes a video game replayable? Fun. That's fair. My wife just yells fun at the, at the camera over here. Well, there's lots of games that are not terribly replayable, despite being fun on the first playthrough. Yeah, that's kind of true. Uh, I, I think we've done this topic before, but I might have some different thoughts about it this time again around. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure if we'd ever done this specific topic. I feel like we've talked about replayability uh, to some extent, but I feel like it was a different sort of overarching topic, but I wasn't really sure. But... Eventually, when you do a podcast, you're sure to, you know, if you, if you, you do, you'll, you'll retread on some ground. Yeah, because we we've probably talked about you know certain aspects of the same game several times as well. We're gonna talk about what interests us. I think yeah. variation is probably one of the key things mm. for replayability. Yeah. Um, specifically, uh, when I wrote this topic, I was actually thinking of. Um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, because in order to go for the Platinum Achievement, I had to replay 
every chapter at least twice, and there was several chapters in there that I had to play three times in order to get certain achievements, uh, basically. And one of the things that kept me going through there was, first of all, just the fun factor. I really liked the combat system and all that. Uh, but second of all, just seeing the story again, you know, certain parts of the story are really fun to retread. And Final Fantasy VII Remake does kind of go on what you were saying here with the uh, variation. Because there's different unlockable cutscenes that I'm not really sure exactly how I unlocked them all, but there's uh, variable cutscenes depending on how you go through the game. Like, uh, you'll, uh, there's a part where basically you're about to go out on your next part of your big adventure, and uh, in one of the play, in my first playthrough, you met uh, Tifa outside of the house right before you leave. And you talk to her and have this cool cutscene. And then the second time, I had uh, Aerith was there. And then the third time, Barrett was there. And it's a totally different cutscene with totally different feels every single time because of the different characters and the way that they, they kind of interact. And it, like, I had no idea that these were coming at any point. You know, I'm just like kind of grinding through the chapter for experience and, or not experience, but for the achievements and being like, yeah, yeah, I'm this part, this part, this part. And the, wait a minute, Barrett's there? <laughs> it reminds me of the original Final Fantasy VII, where mm -hmm. if you did badly enough with all of the other girls, uh, when you got to the Golden Saucer and went on a date with somebody, you would instead go on a date with Barrett, where he was mostly mm -hmm. wrecking on you for being mean to the other girls. Or, you know, the girls. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Barrett's not a girl. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I did it. There was some kinds of uh, variation in Final Fantasy VII like that as well, yeah, in the original. So it's kind of cool to see that they've retained a little bit of that aspect. And some of it is, again, the same kind of just weird wackiness that was a thing in, in the original as well. Yeah. Uh, variation includes things like... And last time we talked about this... I mentioned roguelikes. No, no need to harp on that anymore. Right, yeah. Uh, new game pluses are fun. Mm -hmm. Going back through and uh, stomp, stomping things, or going back through and like facing an increased challenge level or different bonus bosses yeah, this or whatever. Is one of the things that we talked about in our hard mode discussion that got deleted. Um, that. Um, one of the things, again, Final Fantasy VII Remake thing, is when you go back basically from Chapter 1 all the way through the end of the game, is basically everything is scaled up to be a good challenge for max level. So it was just a little bit of a different kind of challenge from the first time you went through it. So that was pretty yeah. cool. Uh, let's see. Uh, things like RPGs, I feel like Western RPGs in particular, mm -hmm. with the character builds, are good yeah. for rebuild plans. Yeah, that's a kind of a thing, although it's kind of funny no matter how many times I go back through Morrowind. I've tried a few different builds, but every time I go back through Morrowind, I'm just like, nope, I'm going to be a Nordsword. It's going to happen. You know, I tried a mage build once, I tried a rogue build once, and it's just something about Nordsword that is the correct way to play uh, Elder Scrolls games. Uh I would also say, let me see, uh, that variation in terms of ways conversation trees can go, or like companion paths, 
you can take mm. help with that. Uh, yeah. I know in Western RPGs, like, character romances were important for that. Yeah. And a lot there, there was lots of special case events where you could be two-timing on somebody, and they would eventually cha- challenge you on that. Uh-huh. Uh, It'd be so interesting to invent a mechanic like that in, like, Fire Emblem. Yeah. <laughs> you get multiple S-Rank supports, and they're like, you have to choose... Uh, then no one tell them about polyamory, but whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like I could infinitely replay Fire Emblem for is that you know, uh, you know, every Fire Emblem playthrough you have is unique because of the way that you go through the supports. Because it's got, you know, obviously the levels are all still going to be the same, but you can go through them a different way tactically and that's going to depend on what's the best tactical situation which is going to depend on what your support ranks are because obviously you want to keep your support rank guys close to each other so that they get battle bonuses and stuff so um yeah you could legitimately and it's like i feel like it's very difficult in general to max out every support level in the game in a single playthrough i i don't think i've ever played a fire emblem game where i maxed out everyone um, you know, cause I'll kind of get into my kind of niche groups and I'll be like, okay, these guys are the guys that go with these guys and these guys, the guys go on this side, you know, and I'll, when I have to split up the party, I have a specific way that I split it up every time. I'm like, okay, I have my, you know, frontliners for this group. I have my mages for this group. I have my healer for this group and, and, and the same for the other group in that, you know, so I'm always kind of keeping mostly the same guys in the same general area, and if I see an opportunity to kind of build support, maybe, then I'll I'll go for it sometimes, but it, it really depends on how the level works, too, because, you know, in some levels, it's like, okay, if I put my healer next to this guy for the support rank alone, then, you know, an arrow guy is going to come in from nowhere and shoot him, and he's going to be dead, and then I'm going to have no healer for the rest of the game. That doesn't work very well. I did like the um, the stacking up mechanic you could do in uh, Triforce Heroes Fire and Fates. Fire I took that fates. in a different direction. <laughs> you you really took that in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the yeah the double teaming was really really cool the, in Fire Emblem uh, Fates. Yeah, yeah, because you could you could get support rank up really easily that way. Yeah, and you could have the tankier of the two members. Uh, take the hits for the team. Mm. Yeah, and then, like, if they were at low hit points or something, then you could swap them uh, or do different things. And uh, so sometimes that was, like, really, really useful uh, for... And, and then both of them would get experience, too. So it it wasn't a thing that was always advantageous tactically, but a lot of the time it was uh, in, in some regard or another. That was a really cool mechanic. Yeah. I was kind of sad to see it gone in three houses, uh, which admittedly, you know, every Fire Emblem game, I feel like they've got to kind of shake it up a little bit. They can't just keep doing the same thing or it'll get stagnant, which I think is largely what people were complaining about and, before um, And they don't have an accretion problem uh-huh. either in Fire Emblem games, I've noticed. Mm-hmm. They usually... Mechanics go away because they might not fit the design of the next game. Right. Uh, and co- compare and contrast with the. Uh, in getting back kind of on topic with a uh, Disgaea, where mm-hmm. it feels like the 
mechanics introduced in one Disgaea game usually show up in some iteration in the next Disgaea game. Right, yeah. I was kind of uh, thinking that it could be expanded upon, because the, the, that mechanic that we're talking about, the team-up mechanic, was in Fire Emblem Awakening as well, but they kind of expanded upon it and made it more versatile in Fire Emblem Fates. Um, and at the same time, I feel like it was almost just an expansion of the... Uh, there was a mechanic in the Game Boy Advance Fire Emblems called Rescue, where one of your characters could rescue another so that they would be with them, and they wouldn't gain experience or anything, but you could, like, move them together. So in some cases, this was useful to, like, get a character who was wounded out of battle, or it was useful in other cases to, like, you'd rescue with, like, your horse guy and pick up, like, your armor guy who can't move as fast so that you can get both of them to a destination much quicker, or stuff like that. And I feel like... Looking like at how attack. these kind of evolved, it's it's basically a natural progression of that. Yeah, throwing a tow table around your uh, your armor guy and just while you're riding a horse and just dragging him along behind you. Hmm. Yeah. Uh. But I, what I was gonna mention is Disgaea in particular has a lot of replay value in the new game plus hmm. in the. Uh, stronger enemies builds in like uh, uh, Dark World was a thing in Disgaea too, and I think they've had an iteration on Dark World in every Disgaea since. An hmm. um, item world for like randomly generated tactical maps. Uh, in particular, builds you can do for custom characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they. It, it's one of those games that you can just play. You can. It, it's one of those very deep games you can just play over and over again. In terms of just going through it, mm-hmm. uh, what I want to advise against, at least in some cases, is a game that gets replay value or artificially lengthens play value through grind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I've kind of... Because I, I, I haven't been playing as much Tales of Asperia lately because I've got a, several other things that I've been kind of... And I and I wanted to try out a couple of things this week, like the Pokemon Cafe thing. I was like, yeah, I'll try it out. Why not? It's free. And Ninjala and stuff. So I didn't get a chance to play that as much. But that's something that we were kind of talking about when I was playing that a little more, is that like grind was like adding so much time to the game that I just really didn't want to do it. So I put it on easy mode so I just didn't have to grind. But then that kind of comes with its own share of other things, like, you know, literally no boss has been a challenge since then. Like, like not even close. Like, I, I feel like I can just use my regular attacks, and I don't even have to, like, strategize at all, and I'll, I'll probably win. And that's a shame. I feel like, yeah. uh, I feel like grind in pretty much any game that isn't an MMORPG is not a good design decision. Unless you're, like, trying to... I'm not sure it was a great design in the MMORPG either. (laughs) Well, in the MMORPG, they want you to get psychologically habituated to it. 
So, so there are. So it's not a good game mechanic. It's a good it's addiction good mechanic. mechanic. To it, it's a good business it's, strategy, is what it is. It's a good business <laughs> model. It's a bad game mechanic. Yeah. Yes. Because that was like my biggest problem when I was playing World of Warcraft was like if I wanted another different kind of character up to level eighty or eighty five or whatever the max was, depending. You know, when I started playing, it was seventy. When I stopped playing, it was ninety. But. Um, yeah, it's like you're in order to get a new character there, you have to grind through all this dumb bullshit again, and I just didn't want to. I'm like, I got like two characters up to max level, and I got a few into the mid levels, and I got like one more into a high level that was not max level. And I'm just like, so over all of the grind and all of the, you know, just. I'm just like, I want to be at the end game now, right? <laughs> I, I don't want to, you know, because it's, it's so weird how it was designed that, like, you had basically two games within WoW. You had the grind and you had the end game where you were, like, using entirely different mechanics because you weren't just doing random, dumb, nonsense quests for some guy. Hey, I need three Velociraptor Talons. Like, good, what do you... I don't care. <laughs> The quest design sounds just boring. Yeah. But then once you get up to the high, high levels, it was a pretty fun game. Very interesting tactically, and very interesting from a teamwork and co-op perspective. But but you have so to do so much fucking work to get there. So when we talk about replayability, do we care about playability the first time through? Do we care about the length of the game experience? Do we care about uh, the variation you can get up to just in your first playthrough. I think all of those are certainly factors. Because um, one of the things that I've kind of been thinking about is like, I'm not sure if I'll ever play Xenoblade Chronicles 2 again because I'm not sure I'll ever feel like devoting another 120 hours to a replay of that game. But you know, I feel like it was justified the first time, and I feel like I would like to replay it, but the the time sink uh, is is a huge factor, um, you know, because that's not even a grindy JRPG, and it reaches 120 hours on my first playthrough. So, you know, it's, it's certainly something to take into account. Um, you know, I had a lot of fun on my first playthrough, but I'm not sure it would be as fun on a second playthrough until I've, like, got to the point where I've almost forgotten every single thing that ever happened, and then, like, almost experiencing it again for the first time would be kind of cool. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But then there's other games where I'm like, I sunk 100 hours into it, and I, like, if I didn't have so many games on my backlog right now, I would easily go back and play Octopath Traveler again for 100 hours. Because my, I was, I was a little over a hundred hours, I think, in my Octopath Traveler uh, playthrough, and I didn't beat the final boss, but that's literally the only thing that I haven't done in the game. Because um, basically, that's one game that actually kind of mitigates grind very well if you're kind of strategic about the way that you go about it. Uh, which some people I've had complaining about grind being an issue, but the way I played it, there was literally zero grind ever because you've basically got your eight party members and 
each one of them has four chapters of their own story, and it'll always tell you, like, uh, the recommended level for your story. So, um, I would switch up my party members based on what party members were the correct level for that chapter for whichever person I was going through the story of at the time. And so, by kind of switching all my guys up, first of all, I was making the game very variable, because I'm, you know, okay, for this chapter I'm using the mage and the, um merchant for this chapter and I bet they had a different and... line of dialogue they had different lines of dialogue for all those chapters is what i would guess is that correct um to an extent um so the only like inter-character interaction in octopath traveler was kind of like how fire emblem does it how it's got like little not maybe not fire emblem is a bad example maybe um uh tales of symphonia tales of Vesperia, those kind of games where it's just like these random little uh dialogue options along the way the little skits they called them in tales of Vesperia yeah. and tales of symphonia where you're kind of going along and um like there's uh one of them that uh so in Primrose's chapter, you find that the one of the bad guys is running a uh, basically doing a human trafficking, uh, running brothels, and um, the uh, merchant girl Tressa is very young and naive, and uh, so there's a very interesting interaction between the two of them where Primrose has to explain what a brothel is to her, and and it's oh. it's all kind of stuff like that, you know? These oh, the, little, old, the old brothel it's like, conversation. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's related to the main story, but it is kind of contingent on who you have in the party at the time, so... Um, yeah, so it's, it does add some replayability from that, certainly, because, you know, if I went through it again and did different people, I'd probably get different conversations there. So I bet that would be, uh, yeah. And also the game was just, like, very interesting to play strategically. Like, every battle feels like a puzzle, uh, which I thought is just a really clever design, because basically you kind of have to attack enemies based on what their weakness is and if you get them with something that they're weak to like two or three times depending on the enemies and bosses are more so it's like nine times you have to hit them with their weakness then they'll be stunned and then you do shitloads of damage no matter what you do so it's just a really cool uh mechanic to try and figure out okay what are they weak to you know how many hits can i get in can i stun them before they use their big attack and kill us all stuff like that so kind of funny how that works all right um is there anything else specific you want to say on replayable games uh no i i, I think i've said what i needed to say mm -hmm. on this topic so real quick though what's a game that you've been replaying for more than 20 years for more than 20 years well ocarina of time obviously that's where i was going hooray we're on the same wavelength <laughs> uh I don't know if play beating the Link's Awakening remake counts after playing uh, Link's Awakening Deluxe on Game Boy Color way back in right. the heyday. It's kind of adjacent. Counts. Yeah. Uh, I also don't know if playing Disgaea 2 again on PC after deciding you can no longer be fucked to get out your PS3 and play it on your PS3 counts. Uh, uh 
but I've been doing that a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's a, something that I kind of think about when I'm like, what are these like really classic games of ultimate replayability? Because I pl- replay Ocarina of Time about once a year. I'll play through the entire thing. Um, I don't think I have that many 20-year games, though. Yeah, I, think I don't have a lot, but uh, that's one. I come back to Link's Awakening every now and then, but I had not very much in recent years until the uh, uh, Switch version came out, and now I feel like I'm going to revisit the Switch version uh, maybe almost as much. Probably not as much as Ocarina of Time, because I just fucking love that game. Um but uh, another game that I come back to that I feel like is infinitely replayable after 20 years is Pokemon Blue. Uh, you know, I still have my original Game Boy, and I still play that every now and then. Not as much as Ocarina of Time, but uh, I've played that through probably, you know, I don't know, 10 times in the last 20 years, which is more than most games. You know, most games I play once, and, you know, maybe I'll come back to it eventually. Uh, but with this one, it's one that I come back to fairly regularly-ish. Let me see. Poke- yeah, my copy of Pokemon Blue vanished hmm. uh, when I Man. was probably 10 or 12, and I haven't seen it since. Mm-hmm. And then I did also replay uh, kind of Pokemon Blue, because I got Pokemon Red on 3DS when it came out on the eShop. Uh, so I played through that um, so that kind of counts, and I think that was one or two years ago. So that was the last time I replayed that. But again, it's you know, it's it's still the same game. It's not a like an enhanced port or a remake or something. It's literally just here's the thing. Just it's on 3ds. All right. Well, I think we've got basically the ideas of those. So let's go on to our table topic, shall we? Yeah. Table topic for this week. Um, what gets players invested in a campaign? And that's... Uh, and I think we've not quite had quite this topic before. Yeah, this we, is another uh, thing where I feel like we've probably had conversations that we might have hit points where we're going to hit today, but I don't think we've ever specifically had this as a topic yeah it's what keeps players coming back to play a campaign yeah what gets them what gets them invested what makes them want to you know see it through to its conclusion Mm -hmm. because i'm pretty sure we can all think of campaigns that have you you and i can think of campaigns we've had that have you know ended yeah and campaigns that just never quite made it they just kind of petered out or people lost interest or whoever was running it lost interest yeah different things like that um which is kind of interesting because i feel like i don't usually lose interest in the campaigns that i'm dming but i feel that often we stop playing the campaigns that i'm dming because our our group has campaign add and just can't do the same fucking thing for more than three weeks in a row you know like three weeks is like the max that we'll do the same campaign in a row a lot of times and Tell me I, I just did. Love you. <laughs> Love you too. And I mentioned in a epi- 
episodes earlier that consistency helps mm-hmm. running the same campaign or the same like two or three campaigns. Yeah. Uh, helps players get invested. That's another problem that our group has is that like most of our DMs have like two or three on their own and then we want to you know then they'll be like oh, I don't feel like DMing this week to do something else and then like a lot of these great campaigns that we're all mostly pretty invested in will just get left by the wayside like everybody was into lurchers when Owen was running that everybody was into um my uh zombocalypse campaign when i was running that and uh you know just happens to be that we've we would end up getting on something else and do a one shot in the middle and then you'd run some O D D thing and and just we'd forget that we were ever even doing it you know yeah uh so sean uh i i don't want to put you on I don't want to put you like really on point here, but I would do want to ask: Have you run a campaign through to completion, or to a point where you felt like it was completed, like you got, like you and the players got what you needed out of it? I've never won. I've never run one to completion, and okay. in fact, in designing, I've never designed the end of a campaign and and i don't and lots of can and that's fair lots of campaigns are not designed to end yeah because to an extent i don't necessarily design them to end with some campaigns i with, with most of my campaigns i make them open-ended that you can play around in the world infinitely but in other of my campaigns, I have an idea of how the end will happen, and I just have to have the players actually get to a point where that is possible in order for me to justify actually writing the session or whatever. And just by the way that we play, you know, in my, you know, 15 years of DMing, I've never had that happen. I've never had a player group get to a point that was like where i wanted the campaign to end and you've you've pushed through depending on like because i i have a very clear end for how i want my ragnarok campaign to end um but there's like a lot of kind of points that not necessarily points that you have to go through but you have to get to a certain point of player knowledge on the game world and the kind of overarching plot and you know all of the things happening in the background in order to get there to go to the final challenge so to speak and because you've been kind of running around in the world finding this out and that out and this out and that out uh you know you just haven't got there and it's a thing that will probably happen eventually but i don't railroad people towards that I try to still make it open-ended even though I have a clear idea of how I want it to end, but I feel like I can't just shoehorn in the end because I want it to happen yes. or anything. I feel like I have to make the end feel natural, and I feel like I have to have the end climactic enough to justify actually ending your time in that world. So... And I, I agree with your approach. I think it's a good approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I think what I was trying to get at with that question was uh, how long how long because I feel like you've run some long campaigns that players have gotten invested in. Yeah. But to a certain degree, particularly for campaigns with no designated end, which lots of campaigns are, they're just play until play until the players rotate away. Yeah. Um, they 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 do peter out. They or the player base changes up, or in like some long running campaigns run by like guys 20 years older than us like mm -hmm. every player has been slowly ship of theseist out of their group while new players rotate in and eventually it's an entirely new group still playing in the same campaign world right yeah uh so what i would say is i did end up running a campaign to completion okay uh, to uh, and it didn't have a planned ending. Mm -hmm. It was just at the point where I no longer knew a sufficient way of. It was there, there. There was no. It was at the point where to design sufficiently challenging things or like interesting things in the world mm -hmm. would got would have kind of broken the world uh, into pieces. Yeah, and uh, so it just made sense to end it with a climactic, a climactic enemy. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, but I would say that that campaign also had quite a bit of player investment up to the end, to the point mm -hmm. where I had players who would have been happy to have been able to have kept on playing it past that final section. Mm -hmm. uh, and that had... I, and I'm trying to figure out what the... Uh, kind of what the magic was there. Um, and I think it has something to do with like building domains or like building a unique uh, set of ideas things around the character mm. that they're playing. Uh, or getting invested in, like, that consequences of what's happening in the world. But I'm not really sure. Yeah, so I was gonna ask um, something kind of related to this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, as a player, what gets you invested into the campaign more? Is it the world building and the NPCs and everything going on on the DM side, or is it your interaction as your character? How much is it? Uh, how much of a contribution does your attachment to the particular character you're playing contribute, regardless of the campaign setting? So for me, when I make a character, I'm rarely attached to the character at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I usually make a character and I'm like, okay, it's. it's it's like a dude or a lady, depending on what I feel like playing at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll figure out their personality traits uh, and what they're interested in as I just play through the game. And I get more invested in them as I just spend more time with them. So some of it's just a measure of time. Right. It's like, have I had this character for 10 sessions? I'm probably going to be much more invested in 
playing them. Right, yeah. Uh, consistency in terms of, like, running times. So, like, if someone ran the same game for two or three months, I would probably get more invested than if they ran the game for two or three weeks and then it rotated out and know when that game would be run again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like it when the game world seems to respond in an organic way. Mm-hmm. Like, say I set up some enterprise with NPCs. Uh, it's like, oh, I agree to deliver this shipment of jewels to the next town over, but we forget or we get lost or we like sell it and just pocket the money and fuck off <laughs> or whatever. Right, have a consequence and uh, stuff. And yeah, so that, that stuff gets me invested when they're like, oh, this guy found out that he got betrayed and now he's got people after you mm-hmm. ready to kick your ass. Uh, that's all fun stuff. Uh, and a sense of progression, which D&D kind of has by default in terms of yeah levels, but also a sense of, but maybe more than that, a sense of organic progression in terms of I do these things, I get, I advance this far, mm-hmm. uh, which is part of why a lot of my characters are treasure hungry bastards. Mm-hmm is because that's a very direct I get this money, I can use this money to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a cool way to look at it. Um, generally, when I'm playing a character, uh, I get invested more into the character than I do into the campaign world. Um, and a lot of that's I feel like has to do with my interactions with the campaign world, so it, it does kind of have to go both ways to an extent, but um, when I have a character that I really like playing, um, I feel like I could theoretically, um, you know, just drag and drop into another campaign, and so I have characters that I've played in multiple campaigns in different, you know, world settings and stuff like that, like um, my character Doc... Um, was originally just an NPC in my Pirates campaign. But I had so much fun with his, you know, personality. He's just like a little bit of a lazy fisherman, but, uh, you know, he's got, you know, enough of a temper on him and, uh, you know, kind of a, a moral compass that is usually... Um, apathetic to things but when he's like really gung-ho about something he'll kick your ass about it uh so it and it it was funny how just like this npc that i you know had just basically as a guy to be like hey here's a plot hook if you need one you know that was literally the reason that i invented him was that then i would infinitely be able to be like oh doc's heard a rumor about something doc's found a wanted poster doc's uh, heard of a fishing con you know <laughs> some dumb thing to throw at the players just to get you to do something if i you know didn't have prep for the session or, or you know whatever else and uh, I've dragged and dropped him into different campaign settings to the extent that I've even played him in your uh, Hotline Armies campaign, which is, uh, you know, just a feat in and of itself. Yeah, it's a contemporary yeah. thing uh, because 
and it 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 totally made sense with the character too because in weird you know different misadventures he ended up you know hopping different dimensions and so theoretically all this could be canon and it's kind of ambiguous in your campaign whether or not all of his past doings are canon or if he's just a insane old bastard with you know some sort of mental disease <laughs> possible nobody really knows and it, like especially not doc so but that's you know one of the things is I'm like super like I really love playing Doc and and I've had other characters like that that I really just love playing you know more than I love the campaign world necessarily but then other times I have characters like Silas which is a necromancer I had who's almost attached to his campaign world and I think it would be very difficult to play him outside of his campaign world because basically everything that I had been gearing him to do is to, you know, he's he's a little bit of a mad necromancer trying to take over his campaign world. So, um, yeah, it's like without that campaign world as kind of the hook for him to, you know, try and take over everything and that... And just kind of the, there's a lot of kind of political interactions that he's done as well, you know, with, uh, you know, trying to take over a city or different things, or he's been rising through the ranks of a particular government and ended up convincing some guys from another government that he was a spy. You know, all of these kind of interactions are all very specific to this world, and I feel like he would be a much harder character to put into a different world. Yeah, he's very much... You're invested in the character, and through that character, you're invested in the world, yeah. as opposed to Doc, where you're invested in the character. But Yeah, he's Doc is a more malleable character that I can just like, yeah, it's Doc, you know, so, which literally I've had campaigns that I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. Should I make a unique character, and I'll come up with a few ideas, I'll do this, it'll be cool, I'll have a cool feat build, and then I'll be like, yeah, whatever, fuck it, I'm Doc. <laughs> Which I think is what I ended up doing with your unknown armies, which I was just, I was just trying to think. I'm like, no, nah, I'm gonna be Doc again, right? There's a Doc. I, like, I can go fishing. I did like that in the rotating GM supers game. He was just an NPC. Yeah, that was funny too, because uh, that ended up being kind of his backstory for your Hotline Armies campaign, because. In uh, the Supers campaign, I just threw him in as, like, a joke reference to my character, and I didn't expect him to be, like, anything except for, like, again, he was a little bit of a plot hook. He was, like, he had some information that I kind of designed the setup in the first session that we played of this that you could go to various different people and they would give you various different information and you could do a little bit of detective work was kind of the... Uh, basic idea behind the session so it was mostly detective work and not very much combat so it was a lot of role play focused play in that first session and uh just i once i put doc in there again as a dm it was just kind of like i wrote several random things that i just like i just liked having him in there as a character and he ended up accidentally being a relatively plot-centric NPC, even though he wasn't necessarily important to the world. You know, he was the plot-centric NPC for that session. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. 
see. Uh, one more is. Are there campaigns where they got that you had played in where you just kind of had trouble getting invested? Um. Or, or, or more uniquely, a campaign where you had trouble getting invested in at first, and then were able to get was able to get invested in as the game went on. You know, I do have a kind of a, a story about that because um, this is a campaign actually that um, we had Doc in it was my character in a Ravenloft campaign that our buddy Owen was running. And then at some point he had like this side story that was um, some guys that were doing other stuff in the world at the time that was all related. And so there's a lot of interconnecting points and being already fairly invested into that campaign world and what was going on there, I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be great. Um, and I made a character that, uh, I called the captain, uh, his basically I built him like, I didn't have any idea what his personality was going to be. Uh, I just kind of was like looking through the player's handbook and in my different books and uh, feet building him to be an interesting character to play mechanically um, and I kind of ended up building him as this mounted charger so he would have a lance and he would charge at people and he would do insane amounts of damage because that's how lances worked uh, when you charge in 3.5 is they do insane amounts of damage because that's how physics um, and I really just designed him from a mechanical perspective, and then um, I gave him this like quirk that he would like flip his coin to make decisions sometimes, or or you know, and, and I really wasn't sure what I was doing with it at the time, and I really was just like not invested into the captain like at all. I was just like he's a cool build, but I have no personality behind him, and then retrospectively after we because we played a few sessions of this side campaign basically um and then a little while after that i thought i know how to spice up his character is that i kind of had this idea in my head that he would be a mishmash of two-face and judge dread right because he's one of the things that i did role play at the time was he was this super like serious about his job army captain and he would go out of his way to uphold the law and all that um and so i was thinking like you know this judge dread kind of character where he's like a hundred percent upholding the law even when it's you know morally ambiguous whether or not the law is correct the law is the law and so but then when he got into those situations where it's a moral gray area he would be like i'll leave it up to chance you know like so it's like kind of this mishmash of judge dread and two-face and i thought this would be an awesome like way to role play him and then i don't think we ever came back to this campaign after i um after I conceptualized that, and I was like, oh my god, I'm super gung-ho about playing him again. And then just, you know, our nature as a D&D &D group ended up, we didn't, I never played him again. <laughs> so, it sound from what it sounds like, we have very different reasons we get invested in campaigns, Sean. Yeah, I think so, because um, I'm like 99% about my character and their interactions with the other characters and 
their to a lesser extent in their interactions with the other characters, their interactions with the world. Because uh, I feel like that's where a lot of the meat of D&D happens, is your roleplay with the other characters. Uh, you know, what are we doing as a group? You know, because it's, it's, there's very rarely like a leader leader of the group in a D&D campaign. Most of the time, at least in our group, this probably varies from group to group, obviously. But in our groups, usually it's like we kind of mutually come to decisions of what the party's going to do. Um, and how we end up doing those, I think, is the meat of where, you know, my favorite parts of tabletop gaming lie is in the interactions between player and player. Um, and to an extent, obviously, between player and DM, because that happens, you know, maybe those are on equal footing. Um, I'm not sure, because I feel like they're differently important to be have your player-on-player -player interactions as opposed to your player-on-like NPC interactions, stuff like that. And obviously, you have to have some amount of interesting NPC content and interesting enemy content in order for players to, you know, care about what they're doing. But, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where it lies for me. Uh, I gotta admit, I do enjoy character interactions. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy it when what I feel like due to the difference in how people approach games. Um, lots of time, lots of the time, people either have an underdeveloped character, like I tend to have in early sessions of the game, uh, so that they're not... And then sometimes they get developed through interaction. I, I can figure things out that way. Uh, mm -hmm. But a lot of the time I also find that people come up with a character concept and they get attached to it to the point of stagnating on it mm. and the character interactions that they have with other players kind of become uninteresting mm -hmm. they, they because they don't go anywhere they don't no, nothing changes as a result of them right uh, so I, I like I like them when they happen, but they happen. You, you, I feel like you need the right, almost the right people behind the characters, mm -hmm. uh, and the right amount of. You, you need to have people and the that have the same level of interest in that. Yeah. If you're not in the same headspace, it's like m might end up kind of weird. Yeah. I feel like you and I, uh, or say you and Owen, too, as well, maybe more so, uh, have, like, the character interaction thing down mm -hmm. in terms of make, making that interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but depending on the other players you can run up against, uh, you can just end up going against a stone wall and not getting much juice out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, which, I, I, I don't know if that impacts your investment or not. Right. Uh, my, I, 
I would guess that if you were in a group where everybody was very much playing paper thin characters, you would be much less invested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is kind of why I don't get as invested into um, like some of the OD and D games that you've started to run. Uh, obviously, no offense there, but um, you know, yeah. and, and we, we've had conversations about this before anyway. There but um, you know. In those cases, I feel like, you know, my character is not as important as the mechanics are. So that's another kind of thing that almost might go into this, though. Are you invested in a campaign from a roleplay perspective or from a mechanical perspective? And, and is there a balanced ratio to that? Because, uh, like, how much investment into the mechanics do you have to have in order to not care if the roleplay is just kind of meh? Uh, so, if the game was... I, I'd say it's heavily weighted towards the, like, character and world elements. Mm -hmm. That would get me invested with, with their... I mean, mechanics matter. Don't get me wrong. But they don't go... But... Uh, if a game was 100% mechanics, I'd just be like, fuck it, let's play like a board game or a video game or whatever. We can get that, we can yeah. get that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the world mechanics, it's like the dynamic things that come out of playing in a responsive environment. It's the dynamic, like, little personality quirks that actually, or, or like, character details that change the world in tangible ways that are kind of the reason I play this game. Uh-huh. So, um, so, and, and, the, and, again, I do get invested in characters that I've played for a long time. The longer I play a character, the more invested I'll get. But even if I'm playing, like, a brand new level one character, I don't expect to see to live past this intro adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, I still get a kick out of interacting with things in the world and seeing the pinball machine of chaos kick <laughs> in and do devastating things yeah. that might kill me or might be like, oh, I'm turning into a mass of tentacles. Cool. <laughs> like you do. Yeah, like you do. Alright, so is there anything else specific we want to talk about on investing players in a campaign? Uh, I think I've said what I wanted to say about that, and this time around, I think I've talked about it from what makes me invested in a game, and you've talked about what makes you invested in a game, and maybe, and because they're so different, maybe it's many things draw players to a game in a different way. Yeah, I think the it's very player-dependent, and uh, maybe even player and GM-dependent, depending on, you know, how well the player and the GM work together and play together. Uh, yeah. You know, so... I think the one constant that I would say seems to be kind of energy-invested. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so, for me, it's more sessions I spend with the game, the more into it I get or, but with some people, it's the more time they spend with a character reading up on something, the more into it they get. Yeah, because I've had, like, players that, like, 
um, you know, really go all out in their character development phase, and then they're really super into it, even, you know, from the get-go, uh, yeah. right at level one, uh, which is a bit of a double-edged sword, because, you know, you never know, because uh, I had a guy that uh, was playing with us once, and I wasn't DM, I was playing alongside him, but I made a character, like, the night we started playing, I think, and I was pretty into it. It was a World of Darkness campaign, and um, it was really hilarious how this entire thing went down, because, like, I feel like, in general, I was making worse decisions than him, but, uh, and, and he was, like, super, like, he was, like, actively seeking a group to play World of Darkness with him, which is how he ended up stumbling into our group and being like, hey, will somebody run a DM, you know, DM a game of World of Darkness? I have this character and I want to play him and get him into the world and get him into this and that and it's like, okay, you know, he's literally, before he joined the group, he had his character all ready to go and was you know, into his niche personality descriptions and things like that, and um, like, the entire campaign, in the first session, I was, like, you know, doing absolutely stupid things. I'm getting drunk and shoot out. I think I shot up a gas station and went to court and, like, just bullshitted my way out of the, out of the ticket for shooting up the gas station somehow, because dice. <laughs> and, uh... He ended up, like, getting in a minor scuffle with a cop, and the cop killed him. Uh, Session one, he's dead. <laughs> that, and, that, that is a backside, a downside, as, in terms of losing player investment, mm -hmm. uh, where the player puts their energy, where they invest their energy, if they invest a lot of energy into a character, and boom, the character dies, suddenly they're like, why am I here? Yeah, uh, which is really even so, harder in the first session, because like, if you've been around for a while and you have a really epic death or something, then sometimes that can get you more invested into the world, I think. But yeah. it's it's very conditional, and it's certainly not a, I created a Facebook page for my character, and now I died in the first session. <laughs> it, yeah, that would suck. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, energy invested. Be wary of uh, people losing their investment because they've lost the thing that makes them invested. Mm -hmm. uh, managing expectations is like a good thing. This is why I open, why I try to open OD and D ish games with your. Hey, your character can die, and in all likelihood, if you're new to the game, they prob they probably will die mm -hmm. so don't get too invested in that getting get invested in figuring out how to play the game yeah uh obviously not for everybody but mm -hmm. okay i think i ran out of things to say on this topic all right so as always i'm your host sean michael patrick thompson you can find me on twitter at spamomano spam you can find me on two guys playing zelda.com i think they're writing up a review of uh, the last of us 2 is maybe the next thing i'm gonna do here once i'm 
a little further into the game. I'm thinking about doing something along those lines. So uh, check out them. They've got lots of, you know, Zelda news content from around the web as well as original content. Um, they do videos fairly often on their YouTube channel and they also have lots of good uh, opinion articles, uh, reviews, uh, fan fiction, stuff like that. So check them out. Um, and of course, check us out on YouTube, Podbean, or um, Apple Podcasts. Thank you, wife, for reminding me it's Apple Podcasts. Um, but yeah, and uh, also, if you check out our YouTube channel, you can, as we said earlier in the podcast, check out my first uh, Let's Play of Undertale, which is available now, so check that out. Even if you're not watching this on YouTube, uh, look us up, A Drink to the Past on YouTube. And this is my co-host. Hi, I'm Chris, still angry about current events saw that. Still? Uh can't yeah, let it still. go. It's been like three weeks in a row. Oh man, a whole three weeks yeah. of... I, I, I can be multiple things at once. I can still be angry and still enjoy myself in other capacities. There you go. Uh, what, I guess what I would say is, instead of plugging myself, because I, you can listen to me plug myself uh, I want to say two podcasts ago, ago, I should probably plug myself next week. Uh, I would say uh, register to vote if you're eligible. And then, like, research things. Because that, that's important. Yeah. If you live in a democracy. Mm hmm Alright. And that's it. that brings us to the end of the podcast. And our final segment is, of course, inexplicable bullshit where we just talk about something until, you know, somebody says something really strange or awkward. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think I said something pretty awkward right there. A little bit. I'm going to cut this off now because I just want to cuddle with my husband and I don't want to hear y'all ramble. So, yeah. Good night. But we always ramble. <laughs> I like the rambling. Fucking okay, then. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Did you cut it off there? No, I haven't cut it off yet. Oh, damn. <laughs> I gotta wait for something awkward. That wasn't that awkward. Okay. Being... Do I, what, do I have to insult April to make it awkward enough? I don't know. Like, do, do we have to make them wonder about, is there going to be a next episode? Because that was some unkind stuff. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know. It has to be at least as awkward as me showing my nipple last episode because, you know, obviously we didn't cut it off nipple. there. Not your nipple. My nipple. I'm not showing yeah, those. Would... Those are for my eyes only. My wife told me to cut it off. Um, that sounds dirty. But is it awkward? <laughs> like a little? A little awkward or a little dirty? Probably both. I mean, you don't want to get dirty nipple hair. No? No, I don't. I think I'm slightly below. <laughs> I was looking at my nipple hair. <laughs> okay. What'd you think I was looking at? I, I guess I'm slightly lower than I was last week, so I gotta sit up here so, so, so you can see my nipples. I don't want to look at your nipples. Don't look at my nipples, Chris. I, I really don't want to. Okay. You know what's great, though, is, um, is Steam lets me use my old Xbox 360 controller. Yeah, I have been liking the c 
controller compatibility there. Mm. Yeah, um, because uh, what kind of, do, do you usually do a lot of keyboard and mouse or mostly controllers? A lot of keyboard and mouse, but some games are just better on controller. It's like, I don't want to play Celeste on a fucking keyboard. Yeah, that I don't want to play weird. a lot of other games on a keyboard. <laughs> uh, it was like a fighting game. You want that on a controller or like a fighting board or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, it, it would feel weird to play Halo without an Xbox controller, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. And I well, feel like no. 90% of the Halo I've ever played is on this specific controller, like this, literally this controller, because this is the one that I had through, you know, obviously I had this on my Xbox 360, and, um, there was a lot more Halo playing on 360 than there was on original Xbox for me personally. Um, just because that's kind of how that worked. Because obviously Halo 1 and 2 were on original Xbox, and then there was just more Halo games for 360, because you had Halo 3 and 4 and ODST and Reach. Halo. And I'm pretty sure we just played a crapload of uh, Halo 3 multiplayer. Like, hmm. comparative to... The other, like, I played a fairly large amount of other Halo multiplayers, but Halo 3, I'm pretty sure, was like the peak of multiplayerness for me and my brothers. That, or ODST, or Reach. Yeah, a fair amount of uh, ODST, because we really did a lot of the firefight in ODST, um, which was like the best firefight mode in pretty much any game ever. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. And, um, yeah, a pretty good amount of Reach, but the Reach multiplayer was basically just an expansion to... No, the ODST multiplayer was an expansion to the Halo 3 multiplayer, right. Reach Reach was its own thing. Um, yeah. But I really did like Reach's multiplayer better, because jetpacks. Everything's better with a jetpack. You, you know what, that's right. Except for probably your ass cheeks. 